This is Theology on Tap. My awesome colleague here, Derek Sessom and I, Christian Lunday, are running this running this joint. Hey. Uh, we've got two guests here, very awesome people, Michael Mumpower Hello. and Joseph Ivey. Alright, so today we're going to talk about the culturally relevant issue, uh, but first... We're going to get to the beer of the day. Yeah, man. What do we got? We got Kilt Lifter by Four Peaks. And they're not an official sponsor, so we don't have official facts. So we're basically just going to read you what's on the label here. It's malty and toasted. It was made in Tempe, Arizona. Yeah. And we're mm-hmm. in Glendale, so it's our backyard, basically. And it's an amber L for all the beer guys who care about that. Yeah. What he said. <laughs> for, all your, for all your Scottish fans. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, so our first question is going to be, uh, for Michael and Joseph, basically, this is theology on tap, uh, summarize your theology for the audience. And for us, some of us are laymen and don't know the vernacular. Yeah. Like me, I'll ask lots of questions. Yeah. So Joseph, we'll start with you. Summarize my theology. Um, I believe in the Bible, um, pretty much, um, fairly literal interpretation of the Bible. I interpret it in the context of uh, the Bible describing the events as they would have appeared to the people who were witnessing them. So it's not necessarily literal as much as it is a literal description of the people's perception. Um, I tend towards young earth. Um, That's the most controversial view I have, I guess. Wow, you're pretty vanilla. (laughs) I, I am a boring, boring man. Hey, my favorite flavor is vanilla. So is it? Yeah, it is. My favorite flavor is chocolate. That's what gets me by with all these uh, cultural issues. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. Match made in paradise. I yeah. guess. Anything else? I don't think so. Really? Okay. Michael, what about you? Yeah, sure. So I'm a Protestant. So I'm. Uh, That's good e- to know. Yes, it is. Right. There you, there you go. go. Right. <laughs> Got to make that distinction first of all. Check the first box. Revolution. So yeah, I'm a evangelical. Protestant, uh, that kind of flavor. I go to a non-denominational church. Um, So we have the highest view of the Bible possible and the highest view of Jesus as possible. Um, I tend old earth. I didn't know we were going to bring that up, but... uh, (laughs) I I can bring up my other controversial No, that's okay. Let's not do that. Um, And then uh, as far as Arminian and Reform go, I I was joking with these guys earlier. I'm 49% Reformed and 51% Arminian. So... Uh, I, I, I tend to go back and forth. So th- those are the major things, I guess, to know. So, Derek, please explain. Um, I think I line up pretty close with what Joe was saying. Um, I uh, grew up a good old Baptist boy in the, the Bible Belt, so our most controversial fact was that you can't be controversial. So that was always <laughs> fun. Um, and, yeah, literal as you can get with uh, with Scripture, um, obviously, the uh, divinity and sovereignty of Christ, you know, pretty middle-of-the-road stuff, unless it's not, in which case somebody should be educating me, because for what I can tell, that's pretty mainstream. But Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's pretty right down there. I feel like I'm the most controversial one here, to be hey, honest. bring it home, buddy. What do you got? I'm a, I'm a pretty deterministic Calvinist. Not, not as stuff. deterministic as, you know, Dr. James White, but I'm close. <laughs> I'm close. Um, I would say I'm... 80% Calvinist, 20% Arminian. I don't know. Pareto's Law. I just threw that out there because I actually don't <laughs> know the actual quantifications for something like that. Um, I lean towards Young Earth as well. I'm definitely not a theistic evolutionist. I am definitely a creationist. Um, I also am a eschat- eschatologically wise. I am a partial preterist, post-millennialist. But I'm, wow. I, when it comes to post-millennialism... Every once in a while, I'll see in the news, you know, some little bits and pieces, and you'll see the hashtag that post mill because it's a sign that <laughs> society's getting closer and closer to be like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then you turn on the news and you realize that ain't true. It's very far from it. So I honestly, my post millennialist view is pretty relaxed right now because I'm just, I'm not very sure in it, but I'm sure I'll run across some data or something to 
you know, reinforce my belief in that. But that's how I'd classify myself right now. So I'm going to make a, a mm-hmm. terrible mistake and try to quote someone from Christian history. Oh, do it. I'm sure your audience will correct me. Um, but I think, I believe St. Augustine was the first one to articulate your view. He Most was. Muslim, yeah, mm-hmm. I think in, uh, oh, it wasn't the, I forget what text it was. That's probably a bit for the better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you don't want to bump up that forty nine percent to fifty percent just by knowing. I think it was City that. of God. I think it was the other one, uh, but I don't remember. Yeah. So um, the big topic, uh, as we record this right now, is definitely the uh, Derek Chauvin case, where he killed George Floyd in a police brutality. Uh, allegedly racist way, and I say allegedly because we have due process in this country. It's not opinion or anything. That's just the facts. Um, But my question, I'm going to start with Joseph because he's our resident black guy. Uh, What is your standpoint on race, and how do you justify your viewpoint on race? Um, Broadly speaking, I think race is um, arbitrary and uh, illusory. Um, I don't think it's a real thing. I don't think it's important. Um, it's important in the context that people treat it as important. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's front of mind, particularly right now. But generally speaking, um, it it shouldn't matter. Um, there is um, a little bit of in-group preference. So most of my friends are tall. <laughs> most of mine as well. I'm five I, don't foot think five. I, I don't think I discriminate against short people, but most of my friends are tall. Yeah. Um, and... Most of my friends are Christian. Most of my friends are smart. Um, it's not that I dislike different people, but those are those are things that I'm drawn to, and I can see some people are just drawn, drawn to similar skin colors. Um, I think that's silly, but it's just about as silly as me liking other tall people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you I think you raise a good point. Like, where where do you think that if there is like a, def- a defining line between like preference? And what you would see more of like a tribal notion and the sense of us wanting to belong to something bigger than ourselves. So like a race or a creed or something like that. Well, when it, when it comes to things that don't determine anything important about you, um, I think the dividing line is whether or not you're willing to change your views in particular instances based on the evidence. Yep. So um, if I'm driving along and I see a group of Hispanic men standing outside of a Home Depot, I will instantly assume they are day laborers. Now, if I stop and talk to them and it turns out they're street preaching, but I still say, no, you guys are day laborers. <laughs> I'm crossing a line. I'm, I'm ignoring the evidence that's right in front of me. And instead, I'm choosing to believe the bigotry or the prejudice that I used initially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really where the proper line is. Um, you can't navigate through reality without assuming things about people when you meet them. But if you hold on to those assumptions, despite additional evidence presenting itself, that's a problem. No. Fair enough. Michael? Yeah, so I, I actually, uh, it's been a few years, but I actually looked up the definition of racist and it's uh, judgment solely based on the color of skin or eth- and, uh, ethnicity. So I would tend to agree with Joseph. If you are judging people solely based on attributes outside of their co- control, that's those are poor judgments. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the thing about poor judgments, too, is uh, they lead to poor actions. So there is an aspect of humanity where Joseph's absolutely right. You have to make certain assumptions about people. It's how we navigate reality. But once those um, judgments are confronted with evidence uh, or, or prejudice are confronted with evidence, you have to drop them. And I think the line, to be more specific, is behavioral, right? So it's when I'm faced with this evidence that's contrary to my assumption, and then I act to the contrary. And I, I mean act specifically. I act on those biases. Um, I think at least that is the should be the line criminally, for example, and also the line, I don't know, for lack of a better term, civil society. Yeah. So, I mean, if I'm from the outside looking, I, I don't know your heart, right? I don't know your intentions. I don't know your mind. So for the out world to, outside world to judge, it has to be behavioral based. And that's where we have to 
draw the line because unfortunately we're very limited that way. So, and then is, was that the whole question? Yeah, that's okay. pretty yeah. much. That's pretty much the question. Um, I think it's a very important point that Joseph brings up, and it's about you know giving certain information. You need to be able to remove you know the way you're judging the aspect of the person and change it based on the way that the evidence is presented to you and the evidence itself. Um, I think that's an important distinction, especially as Christians, because God gave us the distinctions by which we should judge people, and it's pretty significant because it was so, I guess, for lack of a better term, lax. Like, the basis on which you should judge people is hardly any. Mm. They're your brother. They're your brother in Christ, especially saved people, and even you know, non-believers, they're still made in the image of God. They still have the image-bearing logo, if you will, invisible to us, but very visible to God, and he, it matters to him. And I think that is the standard by which we need to judge people is that they are made by God. That's his handiwork, and we need to treat them accordingly no matter how they treat us. Yeah, so you're talking a lot, and this is my uh kick I'm on right now is Christian worldview. You're talking about that Christian worldview. And I think as far as evidence base goes, I had this interesting conversation with an Orthodox gentleman. An Orthodox, uh, Greek Orthodox, I mean specifically, or Eastern Orthodox, to be more general. Their view of logic is very different. And uh, they've, they actually kind of make fun of the Church of the West for how logical we are. And, and uh, he said to me, you know, you're using the other side by using logic. And I said, no, you're completely wrong. It's the exact opposite. And we were talking about in the context of the new atheist. And I'm, I'm like, no, actually, God gives us the grounding to be rational and reasonable. So one way to think of it is if you cut flowers, right? They're beautiful for a while in a vase, but they all die. If you take God away from morality, from logic, from reason, they fade. Mm-hmm. They get replaced with things like postmodernism and kind of the craziness we're seeing now where people can make these statements that, you know, all police are bad. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Like that that far, huh? But, you know, so when we talk about evidence-based and judgment, we're really using a very, very important word in the New Testament called discernment. And it kind of brings those things together so that you can make an informed, wise decision and act accordingly. And uh, I've been on a little bit of a discernment kick because we did a Bible study in Hebrews in my Sunday school class, and that's one of the, Hebrews is very interesting and very challenging, but one of the underlining themes that keeps playing through is a lack of discernment, lack of discernment, lack of discernment. Right. And these people in that time were, you know, if you believe the author and his reading, were facing going to eternal judgment because of their lack of discernment. So it's, it's an interesting accusation and very alarming to me personally. Sure, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, so... So it's in the nature of, what would you say, refining, discovering, reintroducing discernment to society? Because, I mean, if we've taken from like a like a broad sense, right? So what Christian just said was obviously from this table's point of view, I think we could probably all agree on from a um, Christ kingdom-focused point of view. But where would you go translating that to everything that's going on right now? So I, I've kind of worked on this statement beforehand, so yeah. I don't think this is that cool off the top of my head. But I was thinking about that question or yeah. similar questions like it. And uh, I really, I, I sincerely believe this, and I kind of dedicated my life to this, is that we cannot serve a God we do not know, and we cannot tell people about a God we cannot serve, right? So with this discernment, it's the same as wisdom and knowledge. It begins with the fear of the Lord. And I take that to literally mean theology proper. Like we have got, as Christendom, rediscover the intellectual side of our faith and really get to know God intellectually, but also know him personally. Um, it would have been an amazing response if the Christian leaders came out and said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to f- call a national day of fasting and prayer. And we're going to pray for the victims, we're going to pray for the rioters, mm-hmm. we're going to pray for the protesters, we're going to pray for the politicians. That would have set a really distinct tone from the gate, and maybe the world would take us more seriously when we say we want to have these kinds of conversations. Um, I don't know, just some of the thoughts that are 
bouncing around my head. But to your point about discernment, that really starts with that fear of the Lord, of, of getting to know God and getting to know Scripture in a, in a very serious and academic way, to the best of your ability. Not, not, I didn't go to seminary. Not everybody can go to seminary. I'm not talking about that. But we have, in America especially, an abundance of resources, everything from podcasts to books to YouTube videos to all kinds of things, and we need to start engaging in that activity. Right. I agree. Um, so the basis of the question is how do you justify your viewpoint when it comes to race. And I think uh, the the problem of justification is really easy for Christians, not only to articulate, but to believe in and understand because it's based off the veracity of the Bible and the veracity of the Bible is based on the God we serve. Um, and I, it brings me to a quote by one of my favorite people on the face of the planet. He is a national treasure. His name is <laughs> Dr. Thomas Sowell. And uh, he's, a, he's a pretty spicy fellow, but... This, Spicy. this question that he, it's not even a question, it's, it's a statement, but he's asking it rhetorically, but he's not really asking it uh, in a way that, you know, you, you, he's not really asking it in a way that you can politically come up with the answer, because he knows that you can't. Um, and it's very interesting. It's, he says, the most basic question is not what is best, but who shall decide what is best. And in our Christian worldview, we have the answer to that. God decides what is best. And that's the justification, not only for our faith and the veracity of the Bible, but it's also the justification for our morality. What God determines sacred, we determine sacred, because he said so. What God determines evil, we determine evil, because he said so. And he's basing that off of his just, perfect nature and character that he impugns to us and gave us a conscience for. Um, and then opens our eyes <clears throat> when we're saved. And I think when it comes to race, uh, you're right, most of it artificial. I think Vadi Bakum was joking earlier this weekend in his sermon, like, hey, don't hate me because God gave me more melanin than you. I know you, he gave me a lot. You should be happy with your portion of melanin, okay? You should just be happy and be content. I'm like, that's so true. He says we're, we're, we're just different shades of the same color. The only thing I'd fight back on it is, no, we're not a color, we're a neutral. But, you know, that's just me. Um, and I think that the on, when he says that really the only significant distinguishment between different people is Jew versus Gentile, that's the only one that really mattered. Even then, Jesus said that preach the gospel to the Gentiles. We were worthy enough to hear that gospel too, that Jesus saved us. And if you want to make any argument towards any subgroup of people not being worthy of hearing about Jesus or his you know, creeds and precepts and his just mercy and grace and goodness, you have your answer right there. If the Gentiles were worthy enough hearing about Jesus, then everybody is. Um, so that's how, like in my mind, I justify my position on race is because when people say they don't see color, they're not trying to be dismissive most of the time. They're saying we see everyone, and no matter what color you are, or neutral you are, uh, everyone's equal because everyone's made by God. And if God says you have value, then so do I. Yeah, so I, mm -hmm. I, I want you to know Joseph and I are not naive, right? We, we grew up in... Maryville, and if you're from Arizona, you kind of know that neighborhood is notorious, especially in the early 90s when we were there. And mm -hmm. I moved to West Glendale, which was a little better, <laughs> not much. But race was very important then, right? I mean, so there are real issues. It's, it's not so much with race, I guess. It's more with racism specifically. But to your point, um, there is no room in Christianity for racism, Right. Uh, Paul makes this extraordinarily clear. I know we talked about this a little bit before, but that's one of the things that is fascinating to me in the fact that Christianity is the only group who has ever even historically questioned slavery. It's absolutely fascinating to me. Um, and that played itself in, out in the West and our societies of us questioning slavery and um, at least ending uh, African-American slavery in the 19th century version of America, 17th century, there's still slavery going on, particularly child slavery and, and uh, prostitution slavery, but 
we've done a lot to eradicate it, especially in the West. Um, but to your point, our worldview does not allow, you know, judgment solely based on race. It's just not a thing or on gender or on wealth right. or any other social status that you can come up with. And that's not true of some people. No, <laughs> some not. people make a very big deal about these privilege and uh, what class you belong to and all those kinds of things. But I, I won't jump the gun with those issues. That's great. Uh, that brings me to the next question. So it's almost a perfect segue. We have obviously the Christian worldview at our disposal, and it's what we believe. How do we get the secular culture to reflect and adapt to this Christian worldview on race and subcultures? Take it away, Joe. What do you, what do you mean by subcultures? Uh, so what I mean is, uh, so we got, you know, Mexicans have their own culture that they live out on a daily basis. Black people and white people do, you know, Italians do. In our worldview, those cultures, all of them submit to Christ. How do we get an atheistic, secular culture to adopt that idea as well? Um, I don't think our culture is atheistic. I don't think our cart. I don't think our our culture is secular. I think our government is, particularly the federal government. As you get smaller and smaller, I think religion's more and more welcome in government. Um, they do have prayer in small sort of council and government meetings and stuff like that. So, um, by and large, I don't think we're secular. I think. Um, <laughs> I think the problem is we're pagan. <laughs> so we just we we don't we don't worship the 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 one true God. And I think if we could get people to do that, which would be a good trick, um, I think that would fix a lot of problems. Um, how do we do that? Um, Christians are interesting in that we we wanted people to become Christians, so we established schools. We taught people how to read. We fed people to keep them alive. Um, we did what we needed to do in order to get them to learn about Christ so they could submit to Christ. Um, and continuing that tradition, I think, would be the best thing that we could do. Um, now, on the other end, one of the things about Christianity is that we also believe in discussion. Um, we believe in a healthy argument, even among Christians. Mm-hmm. And what we, what we fail to do for a little while is to actually have those arguments. And then if you take, for instance, um, William Lane Craig, this is not his career, but as far as <laughs> he is important to me, his career has been really debating people and winning and showing that the Christian worldview is, the, is a strong worldview. Um, and I think if we were able to do that, then... Um, we can turn the culture around. And I think it is. When you think about um, the change in the view of abortion, um, what happened is we started discussing it with people, and then people started taking our side because our side is right. Um, so really the, the best thing we could do is discuss it. Um, the second best thing we could do is um, uh, start businesses and go into politics, um, which I've – done business. I hate politics. So some Christians have to be willing to go into politics. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, Andrew Breitbart, uh, he, he once said politics is downstream from culture. So yeah. if you don't think our culture is atheistic, then it definitely is pagan. And I do agree that the more microscopic you go on government, the more favorable it is to religion. Um, unfortunately, no one really cares about micropolitics. They care about the big deal, the Senate, the House, and the President of the United States, as well as the justice system. Yeah, I think the important thing to realize, um, and it's, it's a nice area because other people don't realize it, local government is what affects your life. Um, when people, um, were ha- of course, we're having the, the national protests about local police departments, Police departments are not national. If you want to change your police department, it's really easy. You get local people to demand the change. You don't have to have a national movement for that. 
Um, and as long as the other side is focusing on national stuff, we can change the local stuff. We can, we can volunteer for school boards. We can homeschool our kids if we need to. Um, we can start small local businesses. Um, and we can change the culture that way. And we just got to get organized and do the work and do it, get it done. I have to agree there, though, because, I mean, a lot of that, a lot of that's changed, but so much of it has stayed the same as far as outreach and service to local communities. But one thing that absolutely has happened is the retreat and the just more and more capitulation of like a didactic back and forth between two people or just as one, one dissenting argument to another and how almost... A, a falsehood of what um, people who may not be as mature in their faith might see as um, being gracious to somebody who is being confrontational, who is being argumentative and saying, it's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm showing Jesus's love in that. It's like, well, you're not, you're not supporting the truth. You're not, you're not showing them the light in that situation. You're just letting them ramble about things that they think is, is right. It's not actually promoting anything. That's not actually pro- like progressing them anywhere except down their own um, their own path of just self-righteousness. Yeah, saying nothing while your friend walks off a cliff is not loving. Yeah. Cliff is not loving. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I would just say, you know, we have some historical resources too. I mean, the founding fathers really did this well. And what I mean by the founding fathers is those who actually signed the Declaration of Independence. I know there's some debate about who the founding fathers are, but that's what I'm referring to. <laughs> so yes, I'm that nerdy. But anyway, you know, 50 of 52 are Christians. And the idea, the philosophy behind the, the establishment of our democracy was that so you had a country where you could do what you ought. Mm. And that was the idea of liberty, right? You could do what you ought. And this, particularly for the Christian, especially, you know, the Anabaptists who came over and those who are, and all the other Protestants who were persecuted by the Church of England, was that they wanted to be able to live the life they ought and model that in society. So, yes, you have the freedom to be pagan, you have the freedom to be atheist, you have the freedom to be homosexual, but what the church has lost is our salt and light. We're no longer really doing modeling that well. So that, that's one way we can do that. The other thing that we did, tragically, was we retreated from the culture. And yeah. particularly we in, retreated from intellectual circles like the university. And this is kind of the work that Dr. William Lane Craig, Dr. J.P. Marlin, Dr. Ravi Zachariah, work that they're trying to reestablish and, and engage back in. Um, so we also need Christians in, in higher education and education in general. And we need, we need to engage the culture. Yeah, and, and unfortunately to do that, that's a lot of work. That's... Um, that's reading books that are over your head. That's having uncomfortable conversations, you know, that kind of thing. So, I agree. Um, <clears throat> I do think that it's difficult, especially to get the culture to engage in Christianity uh, because the idea of the God that they think Christianity is is not the God that we serve. It's, to- it's right. totally different. Um, and it's very hard to explain that to them because usually they'll separate the Old Testament with the New Testament, and they'll say, you know, the Old Testament God is very vengeful and angry, and the New Testament God is very loving and accepting. Well, I would um, love it if someone would have that conversation. The conversations I have, and just so you get some background on Joseph, I, first of all, we've been friends since 1996, so we go way back. I was and, one. Uh, you, you were one? Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for making us feel old. And then, uh, so we've, we've run a small apologetics group for about a decade. Uh, it's on Meetup. Um, we could tell you more about that later. But the whole point of my discussion here is that we've had this small group for a long time. And one of the things we talk about are apologetic encounters. That's one of the things we, we talk about that. And we really mean any conversations you've had about God or witnessing. And what we have found doing this is that most conversations are super shallow. And what I mean by that is not that they're not meaningful conversations. The complaints against Christianity are super shallow. Like, well, you know the Bible's been changed thousands of times, right? Yeah. And no. No, it hasn't. What? <laughs> <laughs> like, they've just never even heard a differing viewpoint. So, I, I, I mean, to your point, I would love it if someone would be like, hey, what's the deal with this God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> I'm so happy you're engaged in this. Like, I find the bigger issue is uh, apathy, just this lack of caring and lack of willing to have these kinds of conversations. And I... I would 
when I first got into apologetics, I was pretty intimidated. I'm like, I don't want anyone to know I'm a Christian. And that's one of the great things about apologetics, Christian apologetics, is it gives you the confidence to tell people about your faith because you have answers to general questions. And you learn to, learn to say, you know, I don't know, but I'll find out for you. Right. Yeah. But what 99% of these are just shallow arguments. Softballs. Well, I think that this shows your age more than me being one when you guys met because <laughs> my generation interacts with the deep philosophical questions of Christianity all the time. Yeah. And I I was a new Christian and I get hammered by my generation about, hey, what does this mean? And the big topic that I want to move on to now is slavery because in their minds, we say slavery is wrong. As a, as a Christian worldview, slavery is evil and should be condemned anywhere we see it and anywhere we don't see it. Uh, but they think that we allowed slavery in the Bible, that, you know, that was permissible. Uh, do you have any answers to that? I love that you're going first, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think um, in response to someone who raised that to me, I think my first point when bring up I w- that I would bring up is that they are allowing slavery now. Right now, we know that slavery exists in America and in other countries. And we're not stopping it. And we're America. We could stop it. (laughs) But we're not. So unless they're out there marching, trying to get the government to do something about about various types of slavery in other countries, they're just as hypocritical as they're accusing the Christians of being. Um, The second thing um, I would say is that there's... Slavery in the Bible generally didn't mean chattel slavery. It did, didn't generally mean the slavery that we have in the U.S. Um, slavery was completely typical at that time in that area. Um, and the radical thing about the Bible was that um, slaves and masters were equals in the eyes of God. So while we can look back from modern America and say, 2,000 years ago, why weren't they more like us? Um, Oh, it's 2,000 years ago. (laughs) And we fought a civil war. (laughs) And as much as people like to say the civil war was about uh, keeping the union together and not about slavery, it was largely about slavery. Um, So there is a looking back and a temptation to do this temporal um, supremacy of uh, we're, our society is better than theirs is. Um, but that fails to recognize the context in which the Bible was written and the changes that the Bible was calling for. So I, I think it's wonderful that you think slavery is immoral. And maybe the right. reason you think that's immoral is because maybe this guy called the Apostle Paul wrote this book called Philemon, yep. right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, like you know, so the fact that there was slavery in the Bible and how the biblical Christians dealt with that shaped America and the West, and that's why we ended slavery. And I don't, I don't mean that like, oh, theoretically. No. <laughs> all the historical evidence, all the people who have studied this in social sciences point to that as the changing factor of why the West even questioned slavery. So I think it's wonderful that you think slavery is wrong. But I can guarantee you the reason you think slavery is wrong is because of the New Testament, period. 100% agree, especially in uh, Great Britain back during the slave trade. Not to brag or boast, but it was the evangelical right that got them to stop with the slave trade. And then the government took it a step further and was like, we're going to go boat hunting for anyone that is participating in the slave trade and it's not Britain. Um, And I want to bring up Philemon again because... That was the scripture I had in mind for the theme of this, and it's uh, Philemon 1, 10 through 19, and I'm going to read the ESV version. Uh, Paul says, I appeal to you for my my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be my compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. 
especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, and I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. That is so profound. I really don't know how the founding fathers got it wrong for that many years until we actually abolished slavery. So I do want to make a point, because when people answer this, I go nuts when they don't bring this point up. And Joseph kind of alluded to it, but... Another way to have this conversation is to ask them what they mean by slavery, mm-hmm. right? Because most Americans think 17th, 18th century right. African-American slave trade. Bond servant is much different. Bond servant is, and it's good that the ESV translated that way. It's a different term. Now, you get into all the cultural specifics, you probably wouldn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. There's, there's some things about it. You're like, well, that's pretty terrible. Um, but it is not 18th century, you know, Southern plantation, African-American slavery. It's, it's a distinction thing. And the, the the cultural equivalent we would have for that term bond server would be employer and employee. Yep. That, that, that would be the cultural equivalent. Now, again, if you look into the details of that, you're going to find some disturbing things, which I hope you find disturbing because that's the point, right? That's why we progress as society. So I do want to make that distinction for everyone who's losing their mind listening to this going, why don't they say this? Perfect. <laughs> Derek, you're our psychology expert at this table. Oh, boy. That's comparison to us. I don't want to put the weight on your shoulders too much. Sure. What do you think Philemon thought to himself when he read that? World-breaking, I think would be one word. Because it's, it's something that has never been articulated and certainly probably hasn't been articulated by somebody who holds as much influence as they do or authority within that circle. So for that to be coming out, it would just be something that, I mean, he probably read it over several times. It's like, what's going on? I can definitely picture that. Yeah. Just keep reading it over and over. Like, what? Like, no, I I got it wrong. I got it wrong. There's there's probably an asterisk, some (laughs) sarcasm for that day. There's there's something there. Paul's definitely yanking my, or his prison chain. Yeah. It's like, I'm totally being messed with. Joseph, what do you think when you when you read that? Um, I'm going to say something about something else. Go for it. Um, <laughs> um, you mentioned the, the the founding fathers. One of the really annoying things for me is anytime I hear um, someone say the phrase three fifths of a person. Um, the the three fifths compromise is in the Constitution because there were a bunch of anti-slavery founding fathers, and that was the only way they could protect a union. So it was limiting the power of the slaveholding states so that they couldn't count people as people for representation while not treating them as people in reality. So um, the the idea that the founding fathers were all pro-slavery is false. Um, Likewise, I I was at a a church service on Sunday, because that's when they have them, (laughs) <laughs> and um, the pastor mentioned that George Washington owned slaves. Now, George Washington got his slaves when he was 11. <laughs> it was the law. And it was normal, and he could not free them. They made a bunch of laws that made it illegal to free slaves. There was a process that you had to go through. Um, so even even when you look at, at people who own slaves, a lot of them inherited them did not want to own slaves, and and the people in power prevented them from freeing their slaves. Um, so the founding fathers, I think, particularly nowadays, get a bad rap. Um, they've got, um, what was it, over in Europe, I think they tore down a statue of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what? They tore down a statue of Robert E. Lee here. Because, yeah. Yeah, just because. Just, There's irony. On? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like they don't know they don't know history at all. No. Um, okay, so with regard to the equality of slaves, um, I, I think the one thing that stands out to me is that it was important enough for Paul to write it in his own hand. Um, typically, you you would dictate things and people would write it for you if you were cool enough to have somebody to write stuff for you, and Paul felt it was important enough to actually do it in his own hand and to make a point. <laughs> I mean, he's Paul. 
there's an underlying kind of threat there. Um, but um, I think that was that was that's that's a big deal to me. Is is Paul saying I'm going to write this down and I'm going to tell him that I'm the one that's writing it because right. this is important. Yeah, he's putting his personal reputation on the line. Yep. And there would be serious consequences that in that in Roman society to do something otherwise than what he said. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. The consequences of Roman society. Most people crumble under that type of pressure from the state and peer pressure, honestly, from people that are too afraid to speak up against the government. And Paul just said, screw that. I don't really care. I'm a, you know, I belong to Jesus. I don't belong to anyone else. Um, And then to not only, like, not only to be so profound as to make Philemon think that Onesimus was equal to Philemon, but Philemon held Paul to a, a even higher standard, and Paul recognized that and said, you'll treat Onesimus like you treat me. We're equal, just like you and I are equal. And I, that also is so profound. Anytime I read that, I get, I get goosebumps because for any non-Christian that you know, picks up the Bible with all these questions about, well, the Bible permitted slavery, and, you know, how is that moral? How can God be a good God if that was permissible? That right there, that that passage, those nine verses, ten verses, super incredible, super profound, and should answer your question right away. When, uh, I think it was Priscilla, I think uh, Paul told her, if you can get free, get free. I mean, he advocated for freedom, and he advocated for equality back before those ideas were even, you know, mentioned amongst the people. And it to me, it just gives me goosebumps because I wish that all of humanity could take a look at what Paul said and eat that to the core of their heart so that they could take it with them and treat others the way Paul told Philemon to treat Onesimus. Because I'm sure Philemon... Had some hard feelings because slave ran away. <laughs> I'm, I, I don't know. It, it leaves me dumbfounded because I I think it's just an incredible statement and so countercultural to the day, even to this day. Like it is a stark contrast from even other religions that exist now. Absolutely. So we've discussed basically in summary. We've discussed. Uh, our, our theology, how that fuels um, our standpoint and our viewpoint to which we guide and view race. Uh, we talked about how we should, you know, uh, delve into the culture with our worldview in mind and get others to adopt it. You say participating in politics, Joseph, and you say read books. <laughs> the most simplest answer. I know I got Thomas Sowell right here, and no one wants to read him. I'm like, not only, not only is he smart, he's black. Like oh, he should be Thomas able to Sowell <laughs> has a book called um, Black, uh, Rednecks, black and Rednecks and White Liberals. liberals. There you yeah. go. Yes. <laughs> How he, can you not read that book? I do, it's, yeah. <laughs> I have it. I'll have to. Yeah. I got it on Audible. I wish that they would have him read his own books because his voice is like that smooth baritone. Just well, Robertson Dean, the guy who reads his he, books, he has a nice voice. He does have it's a nice voice. Thomas Sowell nice, but right. it's close. And he doesn't read it with like the same sarcasm that Thomas Sowell says everything. Very soothing. It is very soothing. I want to. I want to go just make a point. What Joseph said that hit close to home for our family. Um, We were my wife and I were foster parents for ten years, and we uh, adopted four kids out of foster care, which was extremely stressful. But um, greater is He who's in us than He's in the world, right? So God proved to be faithful in that ministry. But when Joseph says there's real slavery going on right now, that's very real. It's a very real th- threat. In fact, there was a while where Arizona Mills, our local mall here, was the number one area for kidnapping children into the slave trade and going across the border from Mexico. They pretty much told, I don't remember the year, 2012, 2013, 2014, somewhere around there, told foster parents, basically, do not go to this mall mm-hmm. because they intentionally target kids at high risk of foster cares included in that group. So there is real slavery going on still in America. Um I wish there were protests about that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe a little rioting. I don't know. We could probably pass on the rioting. You should probably take some responsibility for that being that we're Christians. But Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the only people in that space, or I shouldn't say the only people, the vast majority of people in that space are, are, Christians. are Christians. They yeah. really are. You don't hear about them um, because it's, you're talking about child sex, tra- 
uh, sorry, child sex, sex, slavery. There are the words. It's even difficult to say. Um, but uh, yeah, I need another beer. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting heavy now. We got to. Yeah, there we go. Heaven. So it's not a very fun topic, right? You're not going to hear it from the pulpit a whole lot. Um, but there are people active in it. And if you care to, to look it up, you can find information on it and, and see what you can do to help. So. Definitely. There's more. There's, I mean, if we're going down that for just a little bit, there's more than a few ministries just in the valley that do just that. Yes, there are, and I can't think of a single one off the top of my head, so I apologize. Uh, I used to. Yeah. So, that, do you want to? I, I the, have the microphone group. won't pick up your voice. Yeah. Yell it out. Yeah. I'll repeat it. Isn't. Streetlight, there yeah, it is. Yeah, I was, yeah, trying, yeah. I was like, it's Streetlight like USA. Street light, it's like it's it, yeah. light something. It's yeah, light, light something. We were just pretending that another person was in the room. We remembered that <laughs> ourselves. She's uh, our version of Jamie from J- the Joe Rogan experience. <laughs> she's just using her Except, all Yes, all so. she's just using her brain. Um, she's our computer, basically, right yeah, now. Until we get her one. We should hook that one up over there. And you yeah. can be on the show all the time. Uh, I have another one, International Justice Mission. Uh, yeah, yeah. I love Justice them so much. Yeah. So much. They don't only do slavery here, but they do it all across the world. Yep. Um, well, and that's the other. That's why another reason I don't think it gets talked about a whole lot is because it's such a global. Oh yeah. Problem. It's it's almost normalized. Yeah. Yes, it is. Well, I mean, either, either people don't want to know, or uh, they just don't know because it's. I mean, the Super Bowl is just open season. Like it's notorious for being like the just kind of like the Black Friday shopping of trafficking. Yeah, sex and trafficking specifically. Yeah, yeah, and that is one of our, it's almost like an American. Sacred cow. Yeah, yeah, it's an American holy holiday in yeah. the Super Bowl. So, go Chiefs. Yeah, well, okay. Amen to that. <laughs> I'm a huge Chiefs fan. That's fine. right. Me too. I got my signed Patrick Mahomes football that was used in the Super Bowl. My friend got it for me for my wow. birthday. Yeah, That's he didn't amazing. know that it was used in the Super Bowl. He just bought this $700 football. and was like, happy birthday, and this is also Christmas. I'm like, best gift ever. Wow, yeah, <laughs> Aside no from my own salvation. You're up there. You're, yeah. you're up there. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah. Um, I want to go to the root cause of <clears throat> what liberals call implicit bias. Uh what conservatives call racism, um, as it's actually defined, not as the 2012 on sociology textbooks define <laughs> it with the power dynamic par- portion, <laughs> which is absolutely bullcrap. Um, I want to go back to the, the actual source of that, and that's hatred. And the Bible is very, it, it, is, it is a huge stickler on hatred, and Jesus always, he always takes things a step further than what you think he's going to by saying if you even look at your brother with hatred, you've committed murder in your heart. Um, when we talk about engaging the culture with our worldview and eliminating slavery, should we distinguish hatred and, and, and racism or should we combine them together? Joseph's I, I think they're different things. Um, I don't think, in my experience, in my personal experience, um, which is very much United States, I've been to the United States and a little bit of Mexico. Um, in my experience, the racist that, that I, ru- I have run into in my life did not hate me. They assumed certain things about me and did not want me near them. Sometimes they would tell me, (laughs) Um, but um, it wasn't, um, it wasn't angry. There wasn't an emotional content to it as much as it was just, this isn't the way things are done here. So my family doesn't talk to black people. Don't talk to my kids anymore. It was that sort of thing. Um, Hate, I think, I think hate is it, it. is an outpouring after somebody perceives something as a threat. Um, and I don't, I just don't see that happening. So I would definitely consider them different. And um, who was it? Um, the Indian guy who was the president of King's College for a while. Oh. Dinesh D'Souza. Yes. Dinesh D'Souza makes a distinction between um, rational racism and irrational racism. So uh, rational racism is. Um, this is sad to say, but there are certain people who will get nervous when I am near them because they expect me to hit on them. Now, they expect me to hit on them, 
because around 15% of the black guys they run into hit on them. So they have an experience of getting hit on a lot. Now, after I, presuming I end up getting to know them, they, they move me away from the category of people who are going to hit on them and into a category of friend or whatever. Mm -hmm. But their experience has taught them to judge me based on my race. Um, irrational racism, I think the, what you can do, that's where you get into getting people to talk to each other. Um, a lot of irrational racists, what will happen is they get in the military, they're forced to work shoulder to shoulder with people of different ethnicities, and then their views change. Um, the problem that we have is when people exist in, in a world where they don't have to interact with people with differing worldviews. Um, and that's really um, where you get into some ugly stuff. I think that's the problem really with the ivory tower, ivory tower view where um, you have the coastal folks and then you have the flyover states. It's, it's just that the coastal folks haven't been to any of the flyover states, so they, they don't know what the people there are like. And I think that really is... The biggest thing we could do to remedy racism is to organically allow people to intermingle with each other. It doesn't work when you force it. It certainly doesn't work to have um, race-based offices, <laughs> um, like the Black Outreach Center for... I don't know that Harvard University literally has a Black Outreach Center, <laughs> but Harvard does They definitely have, don't have an Asian Outreach yeah, Center. Yeah, they do have points based on race. Right. Um, and that doesn't help. It used to be the case that if you if you were a minority, a non-Asian minority, and you went to Harvard, the assumption was, wow, you must be really smart. Yeah. And that's not the assumption anymore um, because everybody knows that you get extra points for, for just looking different. So I think the, the, the solution is mostly allowing for freedom and allowing people to get to know each other. I have a question for Joseph. Uh, it has to do with white privilege. Does it exist? And if so, what is the biblical way to combat white privilege? And if not, what is the biblical way to basically communicate that white privilege is not a thing? Um, white privilege exists in white, minor, uh, white majority countries. Um, if a country is majority black, they have black privilege there. If you go to Asia, there's Asian privilege. <laughs> you go to Asian as a white person, they might be happy to see you if you're spending money. They won't let you buy their businesses. You have to, you have to connect with an Asian person in order to open a business in Asia. Um, so there, I think there's white privilege in the context of there's just a lot of white people here and in-group preference is a thing. Um, I object to the idea that, um, that it's something that we can fix. I mean... We can we can literally just have more babies than white people, and, <laughs> and eventually take you generations, we will outnumber out you. Yeah, get those numbers up. <laughs> yeah, those are rookie numbers. Got to pump those numbers up. Yeah. Real life um, use for meme. But um, when you talk about um, systematic racism and white privilege, um, I actually think um, working in education and looking at education stuff. I actually think there's there's a discrimination against white people. There's more of a discrimination against Asians, but I actually think there's a discrimination against white people. But it's not necessarily because they're white, it's because there's a perception that white people are naturally successful. If you get rid of the idea that uh, white people are, are, are magically have easier lives just because they're white, and yeah. you go to a system where you're really looking at achievement, um, I think that'll largely disappear. But um, there are people who profit professionally <laughs> on on pe on races not liking each other on 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 <coughs> perpetuating <laughs> yeah, on perpetuating Excuse the me. illusion that we shouldn't get along that we should be opposed to one another because of the amount of melanin that's in our skin. Um, and I would be much more likely to oppose you for liking the Chiefs than. <laughs> Well, God, God ordained that that was immoral. And that's a view shared by Arminianists as well. Okay, so. Michael, you look like you had something to say. Oh, to I just want to say, like, a white privilege in the sense that it's used culturally. We had the mayor of, or I'm sorry, the council president of the city. That's 
started this whole thing. What's the name of the city? Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota. Yeah. Did you see him at the? Well, not the mayor. It was the. It was the. I believe it was the. The city. Oh, she was on president. CNN. And yeah, she, and she, she was said, like, "If you call nine one one, you right. got to check your privilege." But check your privilege, and that's insane. Yeah. It's checked. It says I need someone to come protect yeah. me, please. And when you say something like that, I just want to. I, I don't know what to do with that. Like, that's literally insane. So you're saying that the vast majority of minorities who called nine one one, the police come there and make them the victim. I mean, that's the argument you're proposing. And it's just not the case. So when white privilege is used in that context, it's a form of racism, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a form of racism. It's a form of oppression. It's a form of of uh, the bourgeoisie. I'm saying that wrong. Bourgeoisie. There, bourgeoisie. There we go. Yeah, and uh, and I I find it I find it disturbing. And I was very very poor when I was little. So I lived in trailer parks and battered women's shelters and homeless shelters. So. There are definitely poorer people than I was young, but I'd just say that I was very poor, uh, particularly for American standards. So I was very shocked when I went to college and found out about white privilege. Uh, <laughs> I was like, wow, people owe me some things I didn't, <laughs> yeah. I didn't get. So to Joseph, Joseph's a point to achievement is exactly that, and specifically in higher education. Now, Joseph and I both work in higher education. We both worked there for more than 10 years, so this is kind of our stomping ground, if you will. Neither one of us are faculty. We're in the business and in HR administration side. So we get to have a little bit more insight, I guess, on the business side and decisions that are made and that kind of thing. And uh, the most discriminated group in higher education is males, period. All the data flashes out. And I call it male plus. So if you're male plus a minority, if you're male plus poor, if you're male plus Native American, we do a terrible job with Native Americans. And I, I mean, just horrendous. If you're male plus aging out of the foster care system, if you're male plus military veteran, we do a terrible job serving you. That is very, very, very politically incorrect. Very politically incorrect to say something like that in higher education, but all the data bears it out. So it's very, very interesting. I was, I, I got to sit on two, well, I didn't, I didn't sit on the councils. I got to listen into them at ASU, two different diversity <laughs> things and both of them came to that same conclusion one of them said this is bs we're not going to do anything and went completely nuts and went on the whole transgender thing and the the group dissolved and it was terrible i think it was literally worse for transgender community on our campus after that group than it was before Um, and then the second group recognized this data and started really reaching out towards not just males, but all children who have aged out of foster care because they identified that group as a hugely underserved group. And even though ASU makes a big deal about serving veterans, they don't do that great of a job. And then our college really did some things to really help people coming out of the military. That's a really big deal, you know, especially when this council was going on, a lot of the people who were getting out of the military were in war. So, you know, if you have a class for how to wash your laundry for someone who just literally did three tours in Iraq, right? It's not very appropriate. <laughs> so those are the kind of things they were doing to veterans. And so they're like, hey, maybe we should change that. Maybe we should recognize this veteran experience and put them in a different orientation and those kinds of things. So, um, but things like white privilege and the, excuse me, the bigotry of giving people extra points at a higher, education, higher institution based on their race is the problem, right? It's part of the problem, not, not, not a solution at all. Yeah, and Thomas Sowell actually makes a point um, where, um, whereby the very high-performing universities recruit minorities who would do excellent at local colleges, but you put them in this high-performing university and they end up dropping out. Um, and so your help is not helping. Yeah. He definitely does make that point. Yeah. Derek, do you have anything to add? You look like you got stuff on your mind. Well, kind of going back to ask your original question again. <laughs> Going back to asking my yes, original ask question. your original question again because it was a two-parter and we've addressed the first part, but we really haven't touched the second. Okay, uh, so if white privilege is a thing, how do we uh, engage with that biblically? And if it isn't again isn't a thing, how do we persuade people biblically that it is not a thing? Oh, I thought we were on hate and tolerance and slavery. We can be on hate and tolerance too. <laughs> they basically answered that question. Well, we definitely touched hate and intolerance and just how um, 
unequal certain systems are and how the pendulum swings on the up opposite side of who we think are uh, more privileged or capable of doing certain things and how they actually end up being um, discriminated against because of that, uh, you know, perception. But I, what I find ironic is when you ask that question, we didn't even tap into um, the relevance or even existence of of hate or, and how it would play a part in current day slavery at all. And that's really because it's more pragmatic than that. It's really something to where these aren't even human beings. They're, they're capital that can be used for whatever means necessary to produce revenue. That's exactly right. If you hate someone, you have to elevate them. You to have to level. give them. Yeah. That decency. Yeah. It's, I, I know it's ironic to say, but I absolutely agree. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's almost there. There's no, the irony doesn't escape me that th- we didn't even uh, touch the second part of modern day slavery in terms of uh, discrimination or bigotry because the only way that those uh, th- that market exists is that you entirely reduce the humanity of those people who are being um, used. And that, I think, leads into the second part of your question is how do we biblically yep. help people see that worldview? Yep. Rev. Zachariah did a talk uh, to some healthcare workers. Um, you can Google it. It's on YouTube. And it was amazing how he talked about human dignity and the role that that played in the service that these healthcare providers did and the, the extreme measures they went to save human life. And again, I think that's, excuse me, one way that Christians now and historically have done very well I think it's a third of our healthcare system is provided by Roman Catholics alone in America, and the other third by Protestant ministries. It's unbelievable. So that's one area where we're doing well. And I think that's an area where we can touch base with people. Like, hey, you know, part of the reason that we have these amazing medical technologies is because of this Christian worldview of human dignity and life is valuable. Um, so that's one way, one way we can address this issue as Christians and try to convince the rest of the world to come along with us. Oh, awesome. I mean, I think that, uh, that summarizes that, that particular issue. Um, anything else to add actually about making your bed? Yeah. Well, I think we've hit the end of our road. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't want to end this as far as getting political without a biblical solution. Yeah. Is there a biblical solution even if systemic racism doesn't exist, is there a biblical solution to the problems of our impoverished communities and the check and balance that needs to happen as far as the government is concerned? Um, so the frequently I go back and forth between um, uh, this dead guy named Booker T. Washington and another dead guy named W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, which is spelled Dubois, guys. but everybody says Du Bois. It drives me nuts. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, isn't it Dubois? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if you say Dubois, you no will one get knows correct. who everybody is? says Du Bois. Oh. <laughs> so, um, um, I tend towards Booker T. Washington, um, and his solution is um, industry and deferred gratification. If you work hard for money and you don't spend all of the money that you get, um, you might have a hard life but you're able to contribute to the next generation. That's really what happened um, with with me and my family. My grandparents um, professionally picked cotton, <laughs> not just on the side. That was oh my main gosh. stuff. Um, my, my dad was in the military and went to college, and then um, I was not in the military and still got to go to college. Um, my kids are going to be pretty advantaged in life, um, and you, you have to be willing to um, – saying is uh, plant trees whose shade you'll never sit under. Um, and that's really how you change um, communities in the world as a whole is you plant trees whose shade you'll never sit under. And what's wonderful about that, again, is our Christian worldview gives us grounding, gra- grounding for that, right? Because we're playing the long game. We're playing eternity. Yeah. So what we do here has eternal effects. Um, it's not abstract or, or you know, some future ding-a-ling or something. I don't know where I'm going with that. I'll just skip it. But uh, I think our Christian worldview with the eternal perspective there of do good work now, right, to benefit the future, but also eternity. 
And that's the whole idea of storing up treasure in heaven and the morality behind Christian charity in history. So that's, that's one aspect of the biblical worldview that can help that. We also have a long history of helping people that no one else would help. In fact, there's, a, I think, a good case to be made. That's why Christianity started exploding in the Roman Empire, is that they were willing to serve people who were starving to death because they had the plague. They were willing to give them food. They were willing to open orphanages and, and uh, care for the sick and the poor and that kind of a thing. So we, we have a roadmap before us. It's just a matter of doing it. I think that about sums this up. This was Theology on Tap with our guests, Michael Mumpower and Joseph Ivey. And my associate, Derek Sessom. I can't forget about Glory, our Jamie of... Uh, this podcast our, our resident source of all knowledge yeah. <laughs> yeah just using her brain not even a computer yeah. she puts us to shame all right thanks for listening and hope you tune in next time